and welcome to Monmouth Community Christian Church. It's such a privilege to worship the Lord with you today. I hope you survived the cold yesterday. I heard uh, some in a nearby community lost their power, but I think it was restored. Is that right? Um, yeah, so let's be ready to step in and help each other in these, these tough days. Well, many of you know that I listen to audiobooks, um, and my slides aren't on the screen yet, but I'm, I'm sure that you're working on it. Thank you. Uh, I listen to audiobooks, and usually I listen to biographies of various historical figures. I just find it so interesting to learn about their lives. But recently I decided to do something differently, so I've been listening to the Chronicles of Narnia. And I've read and reread these books many times. But this time through, I've been especially reminded of some helpful lessons that I've found in the book, The Horse and His Boy. And I, I love this book. Now, I do have to say that unfortunately, this book also contains, I, I, I have no better way to say it, it's, it contains some racist descriptions of Middle Eastern people that Lewis draws upon to describe the faraway land of Kellerman. And the fact that Lewis published this book in 1954 doesn't excuse these racist descriptions, but it does remind us that even the best of us are vulnerable to the prevailing sins of our generation. So we have to be very careful. But in spite of this today, I want to share with you what I think are some deep spiritual insights that Lewis shares with us from this book. You see, in this book, there's a young boy named Shasta who grows up with a fisherman next to the sea who looks nothing like this fisherman. This fisherman claims to be his dad, but they, they're just clearly not related, and they live deep in the kingdom of Kalerman. Shasta's living conditions have to be described as barely better than slavery, as he's forced to work all day, doing huge amounts of work for the fishermen, he receives no education. He has no hope for the future. One night, when Shasta overhears the fisherman planning to sell him into literal slavery, he decides to escape with a Narnian talking horse that he has just met. And then Shasta has a series of dangerous adventures and, and he's barely escaping with his life. And then eventually, later in the book, after many adventures, he finds himself alone in a dark, dark night on a high mountain pass, walking alone, very cold. And he starts to feel deeply sorry for himself. We're going to learn later that Shasta is actually the son of a king. That's his true identity. But at this point, he doesn't know his true identity. To him, it seems that everyone around him has a better life than he does. Let me read a scene from this book. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe away from Tashban. I was left behind. Erebus and Bree and Huynh are now as snug as anything with that old hermit. Of course, I was the one who was sent on. 
King Luna and his people must have got safely into their castle and shut the gates long before the invading army arrived, but I get left out. He feels so sad that the tears start rolling down his cheeks. Suddenly, though, he realizes that something or someone is walking next to him in the dark. He doesn't know yet, but this person is Aslan, who represents Jesus in these books. After assuring Shasta that he's not a ghost, Aslan says, tell me your sorrows. Shasta then begins to pour out his heart, telling Aslan about all the hardships of his life, how unfortunate he has always been, how difficult and dangerous his recent adventures have been at every turn. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there are at least two the first night and... There was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Luna in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Aslan's protecting, guiding presence has been with Shasta through it all, but Shasta did not know. Shasta doesn't know his true identity as the child of the king, and he doesn't know how near near Aslan has bent him through all of his hardships, guarding him, watching over him. And since Shasta didn't know that Aslan was there with him through it all, he saw himself as the most unfortunate boy who's ever lived in the whole world. In reality, though, he's perhaps the most fortunate person in this entire book. Today we're going to learn about our true identity as children of the king and how this fact changes everything. We'll see that the way to stay on the main road of God's grace, which we're learning about, uh, is by understanding our true identity in Jesus Christ and the deep security and blessing that he provides for us. Understanding our true identity in Jesus Christ then enables us to avoid that that false shortcut that turns out to be a dead end of trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn God's blessing through the good works that we do in our own strength. 
Last week we saw that this spiritual shortcut is attractive, but that it actually ends in a dead end by moving us further and further away from God. Because along this shortcut to the dead end, we view our good works, the things we do in our own strength, as something that we produce and possess and therefore should receive credit for. Along this shortcut to the dead end, we become like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18 because we grow confident in the good works that we do in our own strength. And then we start to look down on everyone else who doesn't do as many good works as we do. The Pharisee, though, did not go home from the temple justified before God, and neither do we if we walk along that false path, that shortcut to the dead end. Instead of the hypocrisy of focusing on external image, of trying to climb our way up to God through good works done in our own strength, Jesus calls us to the authenticity of deep life transformation, which the tax collector models in his humble repentance and in his free reception of God's grace. Today we're gonna look at God's invitation to live in the freedom of his grace through understanding the true identity that he gives us as his children and as heirs of his kingdom. In my next sermon, we'll see how sanctification, which is the Holy Spirit's transforming work in our lives to make us more like Jesus Christ grows out of the freedom of God's grace. We learn about the joyful freedom of our true identity in Jesus Christ in Romans chapter eight. There Paul writes, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. The freedom that Jesus offers us includes freedom from the condemnation of the law. If we're trying to earn God's favor and blessing through doing good works in our own strength, and this means that we're actually trying to live according to God's law in our own strength. We're trying to produce and possess and get credit for our own righteousness. The problem, though, is that Scripture makes clear that this attempt is hopeless. Paul writes, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law is given to us not to show us, okay, you have to do this and, and, and make yourself righteous to please God. The law has given us to show us that we are sinners and that any attempt to make ourselves not be sinners is hopeless. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus sets us free from the condemnation that our sin deserves. 
And the way this happens, Paul explains, is through an exchange between us and Jesus. We give Jesus our sin and the condemnation our sin deserves. Jesus gives us his righteousness. We read in Romans 8, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This month, the Supreme Court will hear arguments that challenge President Biden's plan to cancel student debt for some Bowers. There are arguments for and against President Biden's controversial plan. We won't go into them. But what is interesting to me, though, is how this debate reminds us of a, of a key description that Jesus gives of the weight and the consequence of sin in our lives. Our sin, Jesus explains in Matthew 18, is like a heavy financial debt that's impossible for us to ever repay. And Jesus describes the sinfulness as such a huge financial debt. He says it's 10,000 bags of gold. Back then, that would have been 20 years of labor by a common wage earner, the average person back then. This was impossible to pay off. And the power of God's forgiveness is that through Jesus Christ, death on the cross, by which Jesus takes this massive debt upon himself, we are set free from ever needing to pay it. Think of the emotions that you'd feel if there were an impossibly large financial debt that you carried that was crushing you to the ground, that was impossible for you to pay off in 20 years. And then suddenly this financial burden was canceled and erased. Suddenly you no longer feel tied down and crushed and chained to debt. You'd feel like it was lifted from you. You'd feel free. For the teenagers here, perhaps the closest thing you've experienced is that feeling I remember so well after the last day of school in the spring semester when I'd walk home and know that I had an entire summer ahead of me. I, I had no early mornings. I had no high-pressure exams. I was free. Jesus sets us free from needing to pay off an impossibly large debt the debt of our sin before God. Because Jesus fulfills the requirements of God's law in our place. And as we allow the, the radical truth of this to begin to sink into our minds and hearts, it should feel as though a massive, impossible financial burden is lifting from you. It should feel like the pressure of a school year is, is lifting from you. This is the joy of freedom in Jesus Christ. 
When I lived in Southern California, I'd sometimes eat lunch at an affordable sandwich shop near Fuller Seminary where I was a student. You could get a decent sandwich there for less than $3. Someone knew, though, that the people who ate sandwiches at the shop didn't have a lot of money, though, and so they'd leave full-color magazines designed and published by the state of California promoting the lottery. Unfortunately, most of those who buy lottery tickets are people who can least afford to, and they're lured into doing so by things like this publication that contains story after story of the excitement and the joy that various real people experienced when they won the California State Lottery. This publication never told the full story, though, and you can do research yourself because the truth is that many people who win the lottery wind up eventually miserable, friendless, and not infrequently penniless. And as I sat eating at this sandwich shop, I remember feeling horrified that the state of California was purposely targeting people who could only afford a $3 sandwich for their lottery program. They target them, though, because we all long not only to be debt-free, we also each deep inside long to receive a huge inheritance. It's part of how we're wired. And the good news of what Jesus has done for us, if we understand and believe what the Bible says, is far more joyful and positively life-changing than if you learn that you've won a massive lottery prize. There is an inheritance for those who believe. You see, God could have simply canceled the debt that we owe him, and that's it. This could have been a one-time amnesty on our sin debt in which all spiritual debts are forgiven. Instead, though, something far beyond this, something immeasurably better than this has happened. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God has adopted you into his family. It's like a multi-billionaire, not only forgiving you of a massive financial debt that you owe, that you could never repay, but then adopting you into their family so that you will receive the billionaire's fortune someday. Paul writes, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now it's possible that, that we may have heard that we're children of God so often that we fail to grasp the full depth of this claim. God does not lightly or casually tell us that we are his children. 
Paul communicates the power of this reality by contrasting the condition of being stuck in a dead-end job with no future prospects, with little freedom, with the condition of being invited into the family of the king. Let's look carefully at verses 14 and 15 again. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. Look at those two underlined phrases. They're being contrasted with each other here. Most slaves in the first century that Paul's thinking of had far better lives than the slaves in the United States in the early years of our nation's history. And so think of first century slavery, the conditions were much better. It was more like a dead-end job with little hope for the future and very few job prospects. This could have been the condition that God called us into. First century slavery, we're alive but just barely. No hope for the future, no future prospects. This would have been like Shasta's condition after he escaped the fishermen. He still felt deeply alone. He still had little hope for the future, little opportunity at all. God could have forgiven us of our sin and then just left us alone and said, okay, one-time amnesty, now you're on your own. And we would have been stuck in a life without joy, without hope, with few prospects for the future. And according to Scripture, that condition would have been far better than what we truly deserve because of our sin. But here we see in this passage that God's generosity is far greater than that because God gives us adoption to sonship. And the Greek word used here for adoption to sonship, it entails the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. This doesn't say that you have to be a man to receive this. It's saying that in Jesus Christ, we all, men and women, are given this full legal standing before God that only a male heir would have in Roman culture. In other words, God isn't using this phrase lightly or cheaply or flippantly that you are his child. This is not an honorific title. This is not an exaggeration. When God tells us that we're his children, he's telling us, he's giving us his kingdom. In the horse and his boy, there's a scene near the end when Shasta learns that he's the king's son. He's finally discovering his true identity, which is that he's actually the firstborn son of the king of Arkenland, an ally of Narnia, and therefore heir to the throne. He always wanted to meet his true father, and he's thrilled that the kind-hearted king of Arkenland turns out to be his real dad. But then Shasta learns that he's going to inherit the kingdom because the king wants to show him around the castle the next day from which Shasta will rule the kingdom someday. And Shasta is completely overwhelmed. He feels deeply uncomfortable at this thought. He even feels embarrassed. He turns apologetically to the 
the, his brother he just met who turns out to be younger than him, and thankfully the younger brother doesn't want the responsibilities of being a king, Shasta asks if there's any way that he can avoid inheriting the kingdom. He doesn't feel ready for this. He doesn't need a kingdom. He just wants a dad. His father gently explains, though, that there's no way to avoid inheriting the kingdom because Shasta's true identity is that he's the son of the king. I think that if we truly feel the weight and understand the honor and blessing that God is offering to us as children in his family, then at least at first, we're going to feel a little bit like Shasta did. We're going to feel overwhelmed. This adoption into God's family is so real and so deep and so complete that Paul explains we can now call God Abba. This is the Aramaic word for father. The word Abba was a term of respect that would be used by a child throughout the child's entire life for their their father. And the power of this word is that only a child could use this for their father. You, You need to be a child of that person to call them Abba. You'd never call someone who's not your father Abba. And this is the term that the Holy Spirit enables us to use when we speak to God. Through our adoption, Jesus Christ, God is now our Abba, our Father. If this is difficult for you to hear today because of the deep pain caused by your earthly father, then know that your heavenly Father loves you perfectly. He extends limitless kindness toward you and that he's always working, even when we can't see it, to bring about your very best for your life, his very best for your life eternally. As God's true adopted children who may now address The ruler of the universe says, Abba, Father, God invites us to receive his kingdom. Paul writes, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we become heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. We're going to inherit the kingdom. Yes, there will be suffering as we walk along this path of God's grace, placing our faith in him each day. But this path is leading, in the words of Peter, to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. I think that only when we allow this unimaginably good truth 
that God has made us heirs and we will inherit his kingdom and, and he's giving us an inheritance that will never diminish or be taken away. Only when we understand the depth and the breadth of this reality will we understand the freedom that God is inviting us to experience today as his children. This is the freedom of knowing that no matter what happens to us here on earth, in the circumstances of our lives, and there will be suffering, we have a loving, eternal Father in heaven who's hanging on to our lives, who's guarding us, who's guiding us, and who's leading us eternally in his love. He's guiding us safely down the path of grace and obedience toward the kingdom and the inheritance that he's going to give us in Jesus Christ. And nothing, nothing that happens to us here on this earth can diminish or take away the good things that he's planning to give us, that he's storing up for us in heaven. This is why Paul ends chapter 8 in this way. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, along with him, not also graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the freedom of grace. The freedom of grace that God calls us to receive that we live each day in as we experience the security, the safety, the, the, the deep rest of knowing that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because we are beloved children of God. We are heirs of of his kingdom through Jesus Christ. At the end of the horse and his boy, Shasta, whose real name turns out to be Prince Kor, 
is telling Erebus, his good friend, through many adventures about the story of how he was separated from his parents and his kingdom as an infant. And you'll just have to read the book yourself to find that out. But there's one thing he says that captures what the characters throughout this book are learning and what I think we today are also learning. He says this, Aslan seems to be at the back of all the stories. Aslan seems to be at the back of all the stories. In other words, it seems that Aslan, who represents Jesus, is at work, often behind the scenes, in each of our lives, guiding us, protecting us, correcting us, leading us further along the path, sometimes even even nipping us in the heels when we need to move a little faster. This is a profound profound shift in Shasta's way of viewing his life. It's a deep change in his perspective. At the beginning of the book, he feels totally abandoned, alone in the world, without hope, without a future. At the end, he discovers he's never been abandoned. He's never been alone. Aslan has been there at every step, guiding him to discover and to embrace his true identity as the child of the king. Today, do you know your true identity in Jesus Christ as a child of the king? Do you understand? Do you really get it? That God has made you his heir. That God is giving you his kingdom. Do you have the sense of security that only a child of the king can have? That you are eternally safe and secure in God's loving hands. And that there's no circumstance in this life, nothing outside of ourselves that can threaten or diminish the joy and the blessing that God has in store for you eternally. May we today enter more deeply into our true identity as children of the King and live more fully in the freedom of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today we're trying to understand a miracle. We're trying to understand something that's so beyond our human imaginations that we fall short. And I pray, God, that by your grace that you give us glimpses of eternity, glimpses of the inheritance that we have in you, glimpses of your immeasurably great love for us, which nothing here on earth can separate us from. And I pray, God, that we would live fully in the freedom of being a child of the King, the freedom of your grace. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.